Hi, I'm Dan Schreiber. This is an interview with Sarah Shulman on Comedy Bloggity. Uh, uh, oh, we had a good chat. We had a very good chat. I definitely waffled. I'm probably going to regret most of the things I said in it. Um, so maybe, you know, I'll write a follow-up blog. Uh, you won't be able to find it anywhere because I don't actually have a blog at the moment. Um, but I'm on Twitter uh, at, at Schreiberland. And I'm on Facebook as Man Schreiber, uh, which is a shit joke, which just carried on and uh i hope you i hope you enjoy i i'm sorry if it sucks so dan how did you get into comedy i got into comedy when i was in sydney when i was 13 years old i discovered spike milligan that was my kind of big moment actually i thought that was the big moment um i went back to sydney last christmas and looked through all the old family photos and i had all these pictures of me and like when i was eight dressed as charlie chaplin for halloween and and I and dressed as Dame Edna for a, a school Halloween thing that year. Um, so clearly I was into comedy back then, but I didn't really know it to what extent. I definitely remember seeing Dame Edna as a kid and that changing my life. Barry Humphreys being just like, wow, what the hell was that? It was an amazing show. And I used to record. I found this recorder at home. These like the, almost like the equipment that you have, really old school equipment. And it's a little tape recorder inside. Those tiny tapes, those mini tapes. And it was... Uh, I used to sit and watch MASH, the TV show MASH, and I would I would hold this audio recorder to the TV and I would record it and then I'd listen to it on the way to and back from school, just listening to the audio. So clearly, I was just really in love with comedy ever since I was a, a kid. I've always been a massive fan, but Spike Milligan was the big one in Sydney and I just kept reading it and I finally met a comedian when I was about 16, but he was a comedy writer. He'd written a book about wartime stuff. His name was Jeffrey Mill, met him in a secondhand bookshop. And that's the moment when I kind of went, oh, my God, I want to do that for my for my life, the whole life. What was it about Spike Milligan that you liked? I couldn't believe that there was just this insane human who wrote a hundred books, who I remember listening to The Goon Show for the first time and thinking, this is better than anything I've heard that's come since it. And and then I started, I mean, through Milligan, I, I discovered the Marx Brothers and I became a massive fan of the Marx Brothers. I read every book, uh, sorry, watched every movie. And in Australia, I mean, this was, I, we didn't have comedy in Australia, particularly where I lived. I lived in the beaches of Australia. No one was into comedy. I was this lone kid coming to school going, I just saw coconuts last night. I had to stay up till four in the morning. It was on some obscure satellite channel. Does anyone know the Marx Brothers? And literally no, I had no one to talk to about it. Absolutely no one. And uh, so I, I, yeah, I just used to watch all those movies. And so it was nice when I finally met the writer who just kind of made me go, wow, this is insane. But Milligan, uh, I, I think it was his books. I was in a secondhand bookshop and I just picked him up and I couldn't believe the the insanity, the kind of, the connection of, of almost, it's almost like Jack Kerouac. Like you feel like Milligan just sat down and he just started going on a thought. And if he spelt something wrong, that would lead him to his next joke. And yeah, so... It kind of, I just wanted to be Spike Milligan, basically. And what was your first gig like? My first gig, I've I've kind of got three first gigs, really, that I count as first gigs. Mm-hmm. One when I was 17, and that was, I went to a Rudolf Steiner school in Australia, which is a real hippie kind of school. And they said in the final year of Rudolf Steiner, you can either do your exams, like the rest of the country, mm-hmm. or you can do this weird-ass hippie system that we have, whereby you do a personal development project. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll write a stand-up set. So I'd never been to a comedy club and the only comedy I'd ever seen were videotapes at the time, which again, primitive technology, much like this recording equipment. And I, um, I, so all I knew was that when you do stand up, you do an hour long show. That's all I knew. So my very first gig, I performed for an hour and it was uh, on a character that I'd created um, based on my Hong Kong childhood. And the idea was because I grew up in Hong Kong with white parents and I always wondered what would happen if I grew up in Hong Kong with Chinese parents? What if I was adopted? So I created a character who'd grown up in Hong Kong and was now in Australia, but had a total Chinese upbringing. And I did it for an hour. I mean, it was, it was nuts. And I was riding high off it. It worked. Like, it worked fine. But then my first real gig, I would say, is I did it at the comedy store in Sydney, probably about a week after, and I had five minutes and I just crashed. Like, it was the worst. I couldn't believe how much I failed uh, in my attempt to try and make five minutes of time funny and uh so i didn't do it for another 10 years i just quit i was like okay well fuck that i'm out and uh so but then i guess now that i do stand up a lot 
the first gig that I had in my kind of my second wave was in Kentish Town at the Monkey Business uh, Club, and it was um, I was nervous as hell, so I got really drunk, and I went downstairs to where it was, and just before I went downstairs, I went to the toilet because I was like, it's the thing that all comedians do, and just incessantly just like dashing to the toilet to have a piss. And when I was in there, there was just a bit of commotion. There were like three guys in their seventies, and they was they were with the stall open, and um, basically one of the guys had just shat himself. But the kind of shit where it was like on the walls, like it was. I've got a photo of it. If you if there's space on your website, I'll give you the photo. Which if anyone wants to see what it looks like. And so as I was having that piss and just looking at the commotion, this guy go, "What the hell am I gonna do?" I thought, ah, no matter how bad my gig is down there. This guy's having a way worse night. And it kind of genuinely chilled me out. And so I had a good gig as a result. It was very drunken, but it was it was fun. So what did you talk about at your monkey business gig? Well, I had a whole set that I'd planned to do. And because I was drunk by the time I jumped on, um, I started talking and there was this girl sitting in the front row. And I started talking to her. I, I really just like lecherously just went, oh my God, you're beautiful. I was really, really drunk. And I started chatting to her and she had a boyfriend and she basically cut me off at this one joke when I was about to say the joke. And then I just went on a rant about how she ruined my joke and how she'd ruined the joke for everyone in the room. But in a, in a very unaggressive way, it was kind of just like, oh, no, look what you've done. And I just went off material and then just started riffing off thoughts that kind of were associated with that and, and went into the material as well. But in a way that I wasn't expecting, totally, it felt like improv, but with with a script kind of written. And it was really exciting because it made me realize that I could just talk on stage. I think that's a big thing. When you when you start to do stand-up, the big fear you have is you go, what's my voice? Who am I? What am I writing about? What do I want to sound like? When I did that gig in Sydney at the uh, comedy store, I wanted to be Bill Hicks. Now, I don't have any kind of political knowledge whatsoever. Even now, I've, I have no political knowledge. Um, so there I am on stage being like, yeah, what's up with the government? And no one's laughing because it was completely unbelievable. And so I quit because I thought, I don't have a voice. I've got nothing to say. And this gig at Monkey Business, it was it was amazing because it was like, wow, I, I don't have anything to say, but I've got shitloads of nothing to say. This is great. And yeah, so being drunk really helped. Yeah. And how often did you start gigging after your first third gig? <laughs> after my first third gig, I had that moment where I was really successful. And I, and I told my friends, I was like, I'm going to book out an hour-long show. And, <laughs> I, so, and then I did my second gig and totally like bombed. Um, I, I started gigging probably about three times a week after that. And then I got involved in other work that I was doing, which kind of bled into the evening times. And then I quit for about four months. And then I got back into it and I went through a whole, the last few years have been kind of like that similar pattern, just gigging four or five times a week. And then suddenly nothing for three months, four months, and then getting back and then rediscovering it, enjoying it again, having my... 12th first gig <laughs> yeah um but yeah and, and so at the moment not that much i mean i've just come back from edinburgh where obviously i was doing it every day and which was amazing an incredible thing when the mentality of it waking up on like the 15th day just going again you kidding me i'm doing this again um but then losing that thought after about two minutes and going oh no i, I love this but since i've been back in london i've only done about six gigs a lot of people talk about stand-up as a muscle do you find that going in and out of stand-up and performing it and then not, is that difficult in getting back into it afterwards? Definitely. I don't think the stage presence thing is a problem. I think if you know how to stand on stage, if you're quite confident on stage, I've, I've always enjoyed being on stage, so I've never walked on and fumbled words. I've never kind of lost myself to nervousness, but a lot of performers do. Um, I mean, there's there are, I'm told, two kinds of performers, the ones who have good stage presence but not very good material and then there's the ones who have shit stage presence but incredible material and this this is for startup comedians i'm definitely on the side of i'm quite confident on stage but my material is quite dodgy so when you uh when you take that time off absolutely the muscles completely go so on stage it will seem like it's going okay but actually are the jokes coming out not really yeah definitely you get lazy you get fat it's the stand-up's like the gym you just need to keep going otherwise it just bulks out <laughs> and actually that's a good that's a good analogy you do bulk out you know when like you see someone who's like been at the gym for like three months and then they've quit for a month and they've just like expanded but it's not fat it's like 
Because, like, if you push their cheek, it's not a pushable cheek. It's just rock solid. Like, they've just exploded on the inside. That's what it's like. Your material explodes. And suddenly it's taking, like, 30 seconds to get to that punchline that you would have got to 30 seconds before had you been doing gigs a lot. So it is annoying, yeah. It's not toned. It's not toned material. No, no. It's it's totally flabby, sitting on a couch, just watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Yeah. And having grown up in Hong Kong that had an effect on the hour-long first first gig that you did. So did you find that then moving to Australia as well has had an impact on the material that you do now? Yeah, definitely. I, um, I mean, I have a big problem with my material generally, which is I can't really talk about my Chinese childhood because everyone is just going, what's up with this racist guy? It's, it's, I have a whole hour of material that I just actually can't do because everyone would just, no one believes me that I'm from Hong Kong. And so I often have to, I mean, always I have to explain at the top of the gig where my accent is from when I say Hong Kong. And I still think people, most people don't believe me at the end of a gig. They always say, well, where are you really from? Um, the issue I have with Australia is the same thing. No Australians believe I'm from Australia. So I, I, anytime I do material about where I'm from, the countries I've lived in, everyone kind of just thinks, why are you talking about this stuff? They, they all instead say, why don't you talk about you know, being Jewish, which I'm not. The one thing that I should have an hour on, which is about Jewishness, I can't do because I'm not Jewish, yet I can't do the stuff that I want to do because I'm not physically Chinese and I don't have an Aussie accent. It's terrible. But I, so, yeah, Australia, um, I'd love to do a show about Australia, but people be like, why is this weird American Jewish guy doing a whole set about growing up in Australia? So it wouldn't work. I, I get stuck for that. I don't know, what was the question? I forgot. Whether it's had an impact on your comedy. Oh, it definitely has an impact, yeah. It definitely, um, uh, the vocabulary has an impact. I, I love using Aussie words. I love saying words like can, which is means come on in Australia. And it, it's interesting because you use it on stage and you don't explain it. You just use it and people kind of just go with it. And they're just like, hmm, that was a word I didn't know. Must be the weird... Jewish word that we haven't heard of, I don't know. So yeah, um, it has it has in subtle ways, but not. I, can't, I just can't go. Oh, you know when you know back home in Oz when you're on the beach and and you're surfing, and people are like, no. And how do you know? There's no way you know this. So yeah, it's I, I have to just stick to more. <laughs> you ever been at a Shabbat? And uh, <laughs> that's that's my more that's my area of material. Well, sometimes you do your set in Mandarin. So how do you feel that translates to more mainstream audiences around the UK? I, I used to do this one joke in Mandarin. I've never done a, like a full, full set. And I do, I do stuff about my, I do little bits about talking about Hong Kong in my set. But when I do the Chinese joke, I mean, my, I, I have an agent who, um, who almost every time he sees me says, if you do that Chinese joke on stage, you're gone, mate. And, <laughs> and I did it for a lot of time and it, people would request it. Mainly comedians would request it. Um, but the audience has never laughed at it. I mean, they got, it got a polite laugh or like just a what the fuck was that kind of laugh. But it doesn't translate because I don't translate it either. I just I just I go, here's a Chinese joke. And I just tell this Chinese joke and that's it. And again, everyone, you know, afterwards will come up and go, hey, so where are you really from? And I'll be like, uh, well, I'm from Hong Kong. And I'll be like, oh, so was that an actual Chinese joke? And I'll be like yeah what were you laughing at like suddenly i'm like the bernard manning of of comedy because i'm doing all these chinese jokes and everyone's assuming i'm just this massive racist dude but they're loving it so um i but i want to go to china and do stand-up there that's the big dream i've been talking about it since i moved to this country so 10 years ago um even before i was doing stand-up but that's i want to move there i want to open a comedy club up in shanghai or beijing and have it as purely local chinese stand-up because it's not really done there but it can be done. It's, it can quite easily be done. I, I've spoken to a bunch of Chinese comics who say one of the issues is that in uh, in current Chinese culture, I think it's changing because a lot of my friends who are Chinese seem to not be in this same kind of mold. But if you if you got up on stage and said, "So my girlfriend broke up with me," the audience would genuinely like they would genuinely go, "Oh no, you okay? Is that like it's like that would be their emotion?" This is what this is what my um my Chinese comic friend was telling me. They would they they take everything you say. It's kind of like they're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Stop the stop the comedy set, mate. Are you okay? Why'd she break up with you? What's going on?" Like that that would be the problem apparently with with comedy in China is that it uh, that's one of the other things. The other thing is they just don't do it. They do a thing called crosstalk, which is called Xiangshan, which is like Morecambe and Wise um, kind of just banter, stories and so on. I caught a fish. You know, who's on first? That kind of stuff. But um, 
yeah comedy club in china would be amazing not a therapy session which is what it could turn into <laughs> turn into that very quickly my god this poor white guy thinks he's chinese even in china like, no one's accepting my chinese heritage no one at all it's a shame well as you mentioned earlier you've been at the edinburgh festival performing for the month your 15th first gig yeah and what was your experience of the festival this year I loved it this year. I, I've I've been up twice now. Actually, I've been up for three full months. But the first month I was there as a producer. I was filming Spank every every day um, for the whole run. And that was amazing. Um, last year, I went and I did it with Tom Davis, uh, Big Tom Davis. He's, he's on TV a lot these days. He's on Twitter, at Big Tom D. And he's a great guy. And we split an hour. And... It was incredible. That was that was an incredible month because, as I said before, you know, you get up on the fifteenth day and you're just like, again, what what's going on? Um, but it, it really, I mean, it's summer camp, really, isn't it? Like you get to hang out with all the friends that you've made on the circuit who you never get to hang out with because it's very awkward to try and make friends with people when you're like, I'm 29, so I've been doing it since I was 27. It's really hard at the end of a gig to be like, hey, can we hang out and be friends? I've only done it with a few people, like a quite immediate. After a gig, Eric Lampero was one who just immediately, it was like, can we go hang out? Like, wouldn't that be fun? And you just have to get past that barrier of going, are we trying to be friends? It's a very weird thing. Um, so Edinburgh is at it. That's the moment where you can become friends with people. And that's really exciting. And so that was last year. This year, I did my first full hour, which wasn't a full hour. Um, it was about 30 minutes when I got up there and I expanded it into about 50 minutes by the end of the run. And it was... Um, I mean, it was in a terrible venue. It was on the PBH free fringe and it was in a cocktail bar called Maddox. And the original stage they gave us didn't really work for us because it's a cocktail bar and the only exit out of the cocktail bar to deliver the cocktails was via the stage. So you'd be standing telling a joke and a passion fruit martini would suddenly pass by. Oh, that looks nice. So they moved us to the back room uh, but the back room wasn't really any better because there was a fire exit door. And just at some point during every gig, I'd stopped eventually, but in the early bit of the run, there'd be the, the door would knock and you'd have to pause and answer it. And so you'd open the door and there would be one of the chefs coming into the restaurant with a bag of rubbish, a full bag of rubbish, which I could never, and they wouldn't, they refused to talk. They would just walk through the crowd and it was a tiny room. So it was a very awkward moment. And I always wondered why they were bringing trash into a, into a restaurant. One day he brought Doritos, the chef, just a bowl of Doritos. He's in an alleyway. I don't know where he got them from. And one night I got told to, um, I, t I did my first joke in which I mentioned the word testicles. And in the cocktail bar, there's also a restaurant and sitting at the restaurant was um, a family and the waitress kind of popped her head at the back of the gig where all the, just kind of shushed my gig. So the audience turned around, looked at her and she was like, I'm sorry, we've got a family sitting over there. They heard you say the word testicles. They've got young children. Do you mind not swearing and I was like that's literally the nicest bit of my set like everything else from here is just swear words and like talk of sex and like it just pubic lice people and it was uh so I just had to say to the crowd I don't know what we do what do we do they were like I don't know so I just had to improvise the hour which was quite fun actually because they kind of just went with it so we just they threw topics up and we did whatever that was the fun thing about it. it if you had a shit gig it didn't matter because it was it was so I didn't tell anyone I was up there really like, as you were saying, you couldn't even find the title of my show. Like, I, I made it like that. I didn't flyer. I was in the PBH booklet because you needed to be. But I kind of wanted to do it a bit ninja, a bit stealth. And just learn how to be an hour-long comic, which I, I think I did. I think I learned. And by not making any effort to advertise your show, you still had a lot of audiences come along, and particularly nerdy types of audiences. Do you find that they're your biggest demographic of fans? Yeah, at the moment, I, I'm very lucky in that in the one bit of advertising that I did do um, in the PBH booklet, um, I'm able to, in that classic thing of after your names, you have a bracket and the things you've done before. And my background has been, I was a researcher on QI for years and still work with them very closely. I make a radio show, which is a sister show called Museum of Curiosity for Radio 4. And by putting those two um, shows in the brackets after my name, I attracted the geeks, which is just fantastic because that kind of is where my material is. I mean, it's a bit, again, it's a cheat and it's a bit lazy to, I think Edinburgh should be partially about trying to work out how you can be funny to everyone and not just a specific demographic is what's the point in that. 
you want to be able to play jonglers and and you know if you you know you don't necessarily want to have to play there but if you want to know that as a comedian you can jump up on any stage and kind of go all right i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna do good here um <laughs> and so uh but that was amazing i just you know just having these like absolute thunder dorks sitting in the like a guy with a doctor who t-shirt sitting next to a man in medieval armory and like it, i had the weirdest crowds and we used to have chats afterwards where all of them would come up and say something about my set, which was just in their field of expertise. Like there was a ghost hunter who was in our crowd. And I, the reason he came up to talk afterwards was that I was doing this bit about the fact that um, I signed up to a paranormal dating site called Spooky Date. Now I didn't, I wasn't genuinely signing up to, to go and crack onto people. I just thought I wanna see what the kind of chats are on here. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Exactly. And interestingly, sp uh, Spooky Date, um, I went back to it the other day because I haven't visited for about a month and a half. Um, it's, it's, no, it's, uh, it's mysteriously disappeared. There's no trace of it except for mentions of it being launched online. And I remember being on it because I put in all my details and there was, you know, the interesting thing about Spooky Date is I ended up talking to as many men as I did women because there's just a guy on there going, hi, looking for love. I'm a werewolf. And you're like, oh, I need to chat to you. Like, what do you mean you're a werewolf? And it's like, well, you know, uh, and that's so you just get distracted. That's the problem with being a geek. You get very easily distracted. What did he say? Oh, he just—he was just saying like, yeah, I'm a werewolf. I'm I'm not I'm I'm not strict fashion classic werewolf. I'm I'm like a modern kind of werewolf, and I'm a part of a werewolf society. And we all meet up, and you know, I, I'm guessing they don't meet up at full moon. Otherwise, they'd reveal their cards. Um, so it's like, yeah, should we meet up at the full moon? Nah, let's let's like, or they might say I'm too dangerous. I don't go out on full moon. You know, something like that to cover their tracks. But um, yeah. It's that's the biggest. It's my general life problem. I find would be geek is that in a pub, if I am talking to people, and let's say I'm trying to talk to people that I fancy, I will ultimately just dis be distracted if I hear a crazy voice in the corner of a man going, oh, "I used to be a pirate." I'll be. I need to talk to the pirate. That that's the. Uh, so that that but that's the kind of crowd that were coming to my gigs. So I don't need to find these people anymore. They come to the gigs, which is so exciting. Um, so, and, and I told a lot of my friends up in Edinburgh, I was like, oh, I'm getting all these people and maybe I'm not appreciating enough that actually it is really cool to have the people that you want to come to your gigs coming to your gigs. So I say it's a cheat, but actually maybe everyone's looking for that. So I've been lucky to get a head start purely by the work that I've been doing as a non-stand-up comedian. So what advice would you give to acts thinking of taking a show up on the Free Fringe next year? I would say don't pressurize yourself into thinking this is going to be the thing that breaks you. I think you need to experience it. I mean, if it's their first year, go up and just... I think it's about making friends, and I think it's about being inspired by other shows that you see. That was my biggest thing. When I saw Bo Burnham, I just it blew my mind. I just thought, oh my god, that's, that's next level. That's No one at this fringe is doing anything that compares to that. You know, there are shows that can be technically funnier, that have a better narrative, but watching Bo and just the absolute professional kind of not a second wasted refusing to compromise on the intelligence of the stuff that he wants to do there was so much I didn't understand in his show I just had I was like well I'm sure it's funny because I'm laughing but I don't know what that means what the hell did that mean you said it way too quick there were too many big words but fuck it's funny because your delivery made it really good and and so I walked away from that going oh I have a better idea of what I want to do as a comedian so i'd say watch a lot of shows <laughs> musical comedian <laughs> i'm now have i not told you about my new direction i'm now a musical comedian um <laughs> who does poetry um no it, it, uh, i'd say as well um be interesting about the way that you get up there with how you want to promote the show and get people to see it um i think kind of a bit too often comedians just feel like the audience owe them and like, oh, you need to come to this thing because look, I'm on the front with a really crappy pun and, and I'm, I've am i got a one review from Chortle or from, you know, three weeks or something like that. And, you know, I'm the next big thing. It all says the next big thing. I mean, that's, that's the great. Sean Locke once said, um, uh, we must be going through the single greatest 
period of geniuses that the world has ever seen if edinburgh is anything to go by because every poster just says genius and you know we've had a lot of geniuses in the past but none this many in the world and they're all in edinburgh and it's a really good point like no we're not all geniuses no one's a genius really bo burnham's not a genius he's just good i don't think there are any geniuses in in comedy i think there are people who just are like Bill Bailey, you know, if you hang out with Bill Bailey um, outside of his stand-up, like if you if you listen to him on a radio show, um, I mean, I was lucky to work with Bill on Museum of Curiosity. He was the co-host for the first series, and we would sit him with, um, you know, scientists and and uh, natural historians and and every kind of academic, and he knew everything about their subjects. And it was hearing him outside of his own material being as funny, if not funnier, and that's the closest thing I've seen to genius connections within comedy but yeah we're all too way too hyped so don't believe the hype don't go up there going i've got this bit of hype behind me let me now expect you to come to my show don't believe the hype of the next genius musical comedian that is dan schreiber (laughs) exactly if that ever if if i ever promote myself as that maybe that'll be my my edinburgh show title for next year just genius musical comedy from the boat the next bo burnham (laughs) the heir to the bo burnham legacy yeah i don't know it's tough i'm only i've only been up there two years so i'm still sussing it out i mean if you asked a comedian who'd been up there for 10 years you might get a very different answer and they might their answer might be yeah do believe your own hype because that's the only thing that's going to make you successful i don't think i'm hungry enough that's that's my issue i get told that a lot by i did a I did a gig at up the creek the other week and it was my first 20 minute set on a saturday and the um this other comedian showed up who um, they didn't know was on the bill. And so I just said, well, okay, I'll do, you know, I'll, I'll just put him on with me in the middle. I'll do 10 or something. And apparently that was quite a rare thing for them to hear because they were like, and they said to me, they're like, you need to be more hungry about this. Like, you should be pissed off that we're not giving you a full 20 right now. But I don't, I just can't bring myself to be pissed off about that kind of stuff. I always just in my head, I'm always like, meanwhile, in Syria, like that's, that's just where I go to in my head. If there's any kind of issue. I think everyone should do that. Just have that one sentence, you know, relevant to the time. But meanwhile, in Syria, and it's just everything's into context. Oh, fuck. The guy at Pret didn't give me, he charged me for sitting in when I was eating out. That's like another quid. Meanwhile, in Syria, just helps a lot. Yeah. As you mentioned before, uh, in 2008, you created the radio show Museum of Curiosity, which has been described by the Radio Times as pornography for the brain. (laughs) So how did that idea come about? The idea, I was working, um, when I when I left QI, I was living in Oxford, um, that's where QI was based, and I moved to London and I, I got a job at the BBC in, as development. And so on the first day I met a guy called Richard Turner, who um, we were on the same team and we were developing shows together. And we tried to come up with a few panel show ideas and I, I came up with an idea, which was a panel show about explorers. I'm obsessed with exploration and I love all the characters that um, currently exist in the world of exploration. They're the kind of characters who you assume are dead and existed a hundred years ago, but they're not, they're still around, they're still here. And I wanted to do a whole show where they were the guests as a comedy panel show. And um, as we were talking about it, Rich and I developed it into something. John Lloyd heard about the idea and he wanted to produce it, which was incredibly exciting because John's never produced anything that wasn't his before. So I, I was always over the moon about that. And we got a pilot commissioned and then they just never made the pilot. And Rich left to get, um, he got a new job at the BBC in-house for radio script editing. And while he was there, he said to a guy called Paul Schlesinger, who's um, a producer, he said, I've got, um, I've you know been hanging out with John Lloyd who um, I should just quickly explain. John is a producer. For those, if anyone's listening to this, this far in, um, he made Blackadder, he made Spinning Image, he made Not the Nine O'Clock News. He created the news quiz. Um, He co-wrote two of the very first episodes of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with Douglas Adams on radio. So he was a, he's, you know, he's one of the biggies of, and QI is, is his biggest one. He gave me my first ever job when I moved to England. And so Rich said, I've just been working with John Lloyd. Um, we should get him to host a show. And Paul went, yeah, absolutely. Let's get him to host a show. And so Rich talked to John, John agreed. And then they both said, why don't we get Dan involved? And so I got involved. And then the idea, I think initially morphed out of my Explorer show, where it's the idea of doing a comedy panel show where it wasn't comedians. It was interesting people that we'd either seen talk 
or read their books and seen a video on YouTube. And it took ages to bash it into shape. And it was it was an incredibly ambitious first series. I mean, they gave us the pilot before we had an idea. Our idea was we have a panel show and it's John Lloyd hosting. I went, great, you got a pilot. So that was, we just had to go off and come up with an idea. And then we got the the idea down and they didn't want to commission the show. And it was a very ambitious show to commission. It was a, a comedy panel show with a host who'd never hosted, with guests who don't ever do a comedy panel show. There were no rounds. Um, there was a game moment potentially where people were entering things into a museum, kind of like the opposite of Room 101. But instead of deciding which one was going in, we let everything in. So there was no proper format. And there were two producers who'd never made anything. So they shouldn't have they shouldn't have commissioned it, but they did. And yeah, the idea just came out of us going, you know when you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone who does a job that's seemingly quite boring. Oh shit, I've been sat next to the pineapple expert. And then suddenly the pineapple expert is the funniest person at the table, telling stories about their adventures looking for pineapples in all these different countries and the history of the pineapple. You know, pineapples used to cost 5,000 pounds back in England in the early days. People used to hire pineapples to bring to parties, saying all this kind of stuff. And you just go, my God, this is incredible. That was the idea we thought, how do we translate that to a show? A show we end up coming up with is called Museum of Curiosity, an infinitely large, impossible museum where we were asking all these interesting people to enter one thing that they think belonged in a museum with that name. And because it's infinitely large and because it's impossible, anything can go in from a yard of silence through to the Big Bang when it's the size of a grapefruit. So it, we, it was fun for academics because they could play with imagery. And it's, uh, yeah, we just made our sixth series. So it's going, it's still going, which is exciting. <laughs> and you've also spent uh, a lot of time working on other producing projects. Uh, such as being a joke collector of like Jimmy Carr's book, The Naked Jape, producing a comedy animation project with Paul McCartney, and also being an executive producer on Imagine That, which was an internationally best-selling stand-up DVD starring Reese Darby. So do you feel that producing and performing comedy gives you a better perspective on each of these pursuits? Yeah, I was always... A, uh, everything that's mentioned there, I, I did before I was a stand-up. Um, but... It was kind of the I I I've had the best mentor in the world in John Lloyd. John's really kind of um, he took me on. I think with the idea that he was. I mean, John mentors a lot of people, but I've always considered him to be my mentor. And the most invaluable bit of advice that he gave me was, don't ever compromise on what you think in your gut is the right answer to something that's being said in the room. So, for example, if you're working in development often they'll ask you a question about a format and because a commissioner is sitting in the room everyone in your team is looking at you just saying just say the answer that they want to hear and i would always not give that answer i would give the i would i would for example if they said what do you think about this science panel show that we've got i would kind of just dismantle it and just say well i, I think you've actually gone the wrong way around it you need to do it like this which it, it, it's an incredibly annoying thing but Actually, if you if if what you believe in is um, actually what you're saying out loud, then more often than not, people in the room are going to go, "Oh, that's not necessarily the right idea, but yeah, that's that's interesting. Maybe let's look at it like that." We and so all I did with these kind of projects was, you know, Jimmy Carr met me when I was working on QI, and he said, "I'm writing this book on comedy," and it was just from a conversation that we were having about the history of comedy. And as I said, you know, I used to just read a lot of it as a kid. I knew everything about the Marx Brothers, Chaplin, Keaton. I knew everything about Monty Python, Blackadder, the history of this kind of stuff. But with my kind of QI take on it all, um, it was all the interesting bits. And so Jimmy just said, would you be the joke collector on my book? And that was an amazing experience because Jimmy gave me all of his joke books to kind of sieve through and, and pick out. And when I say joke books, I don't mean ones that he's written. I mean, he collects joke books. He's got an incredible collection and he reads them all because after every joke, there's either a tick or a cross where he's just gone, that's a great structure. And in some cases, he's rewritten jokes. There's a famous Groucho Marx joke, which is outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. Which is just, it's, you know, it's not a particularly funny joke, but it's, it's, a, it's a famous Groucho Marx saying. And he had written just on top of it, outside of a woman, a book is a man's best friend, whilst inside a woman, it's rude to read. And he's never used that on stage. It was just clearly just a thought that he just had in the moment and it was just sitting there and so he wrote it. So that was, that was incredible. I got to just, you know, look through all these books. With Reese Darby, um, <laughs> it's hilarious. I, I met 
Reese Darby because I myspaced him, which is an amazing sentence. Again, a kind of sentence which is appropriate for the technology that you're using to record this. Like, I myspaced him. That's how we met. And Reese and I just got on really well. I was working for Warner Music at the time as a commissioner for their online content. And Reese and I had made, we'd spent a day in Hampstead just recording, just filming sketches. And it was my favorite day of work I've ever had in my life. It was just three people dicking about. James Wren, who runs Spank, was also in, in all the clips. Bob Pipe, who's a director, was there. My friend Dan Neeson was there as well. Um, a girl called Juliet Cochran, who owned the house that we were filming in. And it was just, it was just us, just dicking about the whole day. And we got on so well that I said to Reese, look, you're going to Hollywood to become an actor now. You're probably going to quit stand-up. So I was completely wrong about that. Um, but I was like, before you do, why don't we make your DVD? Why don't I try and talk Warner into doing it? And he said yes, and then they said yes. And I guess because I just kind of brokered the deal slightly, they just allowed me to exec produce it. And I put the whole thing together. There's extras on it and stuff where I interview Reese and... I was just incredibly lucky. I mean, that that all everything in my career actually has just been incredible luck and timing. Um, I don't think it's to do necessarily with skill. I think it's just uh, it's that thing of just making sure you actually say what you think. It's the key. It totally is the key. As soon as you start just saying, you know, pitching shows that you would never watch, um, you know, trying to help develop a show that you don't believe in trying to convince a commissioner to buy a thing, telling jokes on stage that you don't believe in. I mean, that's a big thing as well. You know, you get up on stage and it's fair enough you're trying to learn how to find your voice at the very beginning. But as soon as you start believing in the stuff that you're talking about, it changes. That's the flip moment. And yeah, so yeah, all the stuff that I've done in my career, it's it's total luck. It's it's not to do with the fact that I, I actually deserve to do them. <laughs> and as you were saying before, you were a researcher in QI. Have you found that this has had an effect on the way that you write your stand-up definitely yeah i um to begin with all of my stand-up was basically my favorite facts with me at the end just going how insane is that and no punchlines, no jokes nothing and so and i still do that a lot i mean a lot of people would argue that that is what i do um the way it's changed is that i'm now incorporating my real life into the facts so it's almost a mashup of going this happened to me in my life interestingly this also happened to someone else here's an interesting story about that person and then back to my own um, experience but it, it's also helped me to pick the interesting bits of my own life as well to find you know I made this discovery and it's it's a joke I should definitely retire now because it was it was an early joke but it just it was relevant for this year's hour-long show and that was that um, I discovered that my nickname from childhood, which was Dan Dan, actually translated in Cantonese as testicles. And, and I didn't know that I was being called balls at school. I just thought I had a cool nickname, which was Dan Dan. And I only discovered that two years ago on Facebook by accident. And I went to all my friends just saying, did you know about this? And they were all like, yeah, did you not? And, and so suddenly the qi bit of the researcher bit of my head goes that's a really interesting fact there's a lot i can do with that and i found a lot of stuff about other people's names a guy who called himself well refused to change his name from adolf hitler became a big part of my set he lived in america after world war ii and just refused to change his name um there's i found this great fact out about the fact that obama's mum so, like, remember when Obama was being elected? Like, there's just the whole thing about America's never going to elect a man who's got the name Obama, you know, and, and Hussein in his name as well. And the thing they never mentioned, which I would have thought would have been an obvious thing, is that Obama's mum's name is Stanley. So her, she was called Stan the Man at school by her friends. And I just thought, isn't that incredible? Like, we all were so focused on his name and no one looked that one step back just to notice that, you know, no one said, you know, he's got a really weird name. Something that runs in the family. No one said that sentence. And so I, I that's how I kind of do it. I start just collecting these interesting little names. Jermaine Jackson recently changed his surname to Jackson. So S-U-N at the end, right? And the best bit about it is he announced it at a at a press release kind of thing. You know, he like he had a press conference. So I've changed my name. And they said, why have you done that? And he said, oh, I don't want to talk about it. So we don't know why he's changed his name. He called his son Jafar, which I appreciate is, you know, a big name. But if you're living in America, don't name your kid after a Disney villain. That's your poor kid. He's going to grow up and be, I don't know. 
and blanket, you know, foreign blanket. Who are you going to trust when they get in a fight and they're telling you, yeah, who started it? Who started this fight? Was it you, blanket? Or was it you, Jafar? Like, you would totally just, it's Jafar every time, right? And then also the other one I read the other day um, is that uh, Dennis Rodman. Do you remember there was a story, this is just before Edinburgh, where Dennis Rodman had been to North Korea and he'd suddenly made friends with Kim Jong-un. And no one else in America has made friends with this guy before. And so I was trying to look at connections between what maybe they have in common. I thought, okay, I wonder what Dennis Rodman's dad's like. Because, you know, I know what his dad was like. Kim Jong's dad. And Dennis Rodman's dad lives in the Philippines. He has 45 kids. 28, according to him. But according to Dennis Rodman, 45. And he, um, his first name, all to obviously different wives. That's not just one lady, just like getting, just like, really? Another kid? I've had 45, come on. Um, his first name, Dennis Rodman's dad's first name, which he hasn't changed, he got given this by birth, is Philander. And spelt P-H-I-L, so spelt exactly the same. It's insane, Philander Rodman. I got 45 kids. I get obsessed by that kind of stuff. That does, That's not in my, like, none of the stuff I've just said is in my stand-up, but that's the kind of stuff that would, um, off finding a fact about myself, I would then go, okay, how can I explore? I find it really hard to write material. I'm not that funny. <laughs> I just find funny things that are written and try and add a little, like, a dick joke or something at the end of it. <laughs> how insane is that? How insane is that? What a dick. Yeah, that's that's all I have. So do you have a specific process that you go about when you write the material? Uh, yeah, I usually come up with the idea, feel out the territory and then say it on stage. And then when it doesn't get a laugh, I have to then improvise off the back of it. And that's usually when I find the joke. It's that weird thing. You kind of go, oh, this is going to go down great. And then you get on stage, you tell it, there's a silence. And then you go, you go into almost like bomb... Uh, I always think, I kind of, it's a stupid analogy, but I always think it's kind of like when you see in movies where like they get the guys who, what, what's it called? The, the, the bomb disposal unit? Yeah, when they come in and suddenly there's seconds counting down and they have to remain calm and decide which wire to cut. I feel like that's often what it's the case with stand-up where as soon as your joke doesn't work, you go into that mode. Rather than panicking, you kind of, you calm down a tiny bit and you go, okay, I just need to find another funny thing to say about this. And that often is then when I find the joke in what I meant to say. It's like, oh damn it, there it was. I just needed to I just needed to realize that the first thing I thought was not funny in any way. And that would lead me on stage to then getting that. It's a dangerous way to do it. And sometimes the things you do write are funny. I mean, but I don't really write jokes. I have a lot of friends who do write jokes, straight up jokes. And so you know when they tell you off stage, you're like, well of course that's gonna get a huge laugh. That's that's great. But when I'm sort of going, hey there's a guy called Adolf Hitler, you know, who refused to change his name. I just get all my comedy friends staring at me going, uh-huh, and where's where's the gag? <laughs> where's that happening? So it's, you only find out on stage, or certainly I only find out on stage. And do you find that you get heckled a lot? Not really. I, I, I think people find it hard to heckle my kind of material. The kind of heckles I get are like really academic ones, which kind of throw me hugely because I have no knowledge about the thing I'm talking about. But like, I'll be talking about ancient Egypt, and I'll just, someone in the crowd will just be like, Akhenaten was a charlatan and a, and a murderer, and you know it. So how do you respond to that? I've, I've got nothing. I'm not going to get into some massive debate about Akhenaten. Um, I, heckles, not really. The heckles I kind of get are just people not believing the material that I'm talking about. No, no heckles. I don't, I don't, I never get heckled. I'd like some heckles. It'd be nice. And do you have a favorite type of venue that you prefer performing in? I love the um, Blackheart and Camden. I don't know why. There's just something about that room that is, I think, makes people want to laugh more and comedians want to be funnier. I don't know why. It's just, it's got, a, it's, and you can be there on the shittest of nights where just, you know, for some reason you'll come off and you'll be like, I don't know why that should have failed. I was stumbling. I was, uh, and it just somehow works every time. So I love that room. I love, um, I mean, I, I'm I'm really into the whole kind of specialist movement that's going on at the moment within comedy. You know, everyone keeps talking about, I, I keep reading all these chortle correspondent pieces and stuff where everyone's questioning the current state of comedy and, you know, is it dying and all the clubs are really suffering. 
But yeah, sure. All the nights who were kind of just going, it's a stand-up night, seem to be suffering. But most of the gigs I do these days are science show-off or specialist subject. I'm doing a gig tonight, which is a poetry versus stand-up night. And those nights pull in such massive crowds because suddenly there's a substance to it. There's something that you can grip onto and go, oh, we're going to experience an interesting night here. And sure, that's not how all stand-up should be, but something's going on right now. There's something in the air, basically. If that's if those are the nights where scientists are getting up on stage and, and the rooms are way more packed than, let's say, a club down the road that's been going for 20 years, then it's kind of like a get-with-the-times kind of thing. Everyone, everyone assumes... Yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of talk about like comedy is dying. It's it's that thing of you just you got to go, guys. This is we always assume as well that we're like at the end of like the evolutionary process of everything. It's like 2013, we've sorted it out. Civilization has worked out. It's like no, things evolve. That's why words like in it are being used by everyone now. And and lol, like this language changes. So does the state of comedy. You know, comedy stand up didn't exist. You know. 50 years ago and now it does i mean maybe even less than 50 wasn't it the 80s properly properly kind of like boomed i guess with the alexi sale movement maybe a bit before I'm, i might be messing that up but so they're like oh no it's it's so bad like it's kind of dying it's like no it's not because i'm seeing how awesome it is in tons of rooms every night of the week in london and all they've done is just put a slight twist on it and made it appealing to go to now because we're saturated in too many clubs and everyone's too upset about it but it's the next it must be the next step or at least it's the current step that's being made and it's working so if you're putting on a night i reckon just put a spin on it it will work it'll attract a crowd yeah i don't know i what was the question i ranted way too much to know what you whether you have a favorite type of venue oh yeah (laughs) totally (laughs) not in any way the answer you wanted uh yeah I, i love i love that room the black heart I love I love playing up the creek. Really love up the creek. That's the other room where I feel like every time I'm going to have a good gig. I like any venue that kind of looks a bit professional and vaudeville. I like shambolic looking ones, but like with up the creek, it just feels like oh, I'm on a stage, and this this is there's a backdrop here, and it has a a title and it has a history, which is quite cool. The Malcolm Hardy kind of history. It just makes you go oh, this I feel like I'm I'm doing comedy in comedy. This is nuts. The, the stage was Malcolm's stage. So yeah, those are my favorite two, I'd, I'd say. And do you have a favorite type of audience to perform to? I do love performing to my geeks. I mean, it's my geeks. I do because they're, you can, I can do the jokes that I really want to do. I, I can, I can talk about Brian Blessed and it not be seen as a kind of, you know a niche thing which is very exciting um but then at the same time i love playing to up the creek and what i love about up the creek is my material is not up the creek material but actually it if you just if you change the word slightly it suddenly is and that's very exciting um so i love i love playing actually my favorite audience is the one that like the up the creek ones where i kind of going i should buy definition die tonight because i'm about to walk on stage and talk about geek parties and i'm about to talk about pubic lice hunters and i'm about to talk about um how i uh read this interesting fact about something and that shouldn't work when you're in a crowd where there's stag dudes from essex and but it does and i don't know why but that it's way more rewarding to get sort of a big applause at the end of that than it is doing a geek gig but i do love my geeks do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comedians? Yes, I would say, I'd say, I mean, if you're an aspiring comedian, you're going to be doing stand-up anyway. So you're going to be doing all that kind of stuff. I would say start getting involved in the other side of comedy. Look into the other bits that you didn't expect. That You I, you can go down the one track and you can go just as a stand-up and that's fine. That's really cool. But if you're into comedy, then you're probably going to love working, say, coming up with tv show ideas or even doing podcasts and stuff like that it's really it's it's kind of often i I know a lot of friends like say we have like um, a mutual friend john currents right so for years john and still probably john's got this job and he wants to do comedy full-time and the thing is that he wants to do his performance full-time that's that's kind of the dream really 
And so he's been working in this other job for all these years. And I just kind of think, and, and it, this is not going to apply to everyone. I don't even think it necessarily applies to John. But if you if you get into comedy in other areas, it kind of allows you to take a slip road up towards a more successful career straight away. Because if you've got a great comedy mind, then you're going to be able to get good jobs within comedy, either writing for shows or producing um, the big the big tip I would give though if you were going down that route is don't try and get into comedy departments go into every other department so like I never once worked for an actual comedy department I worked for light entertainment but you'd get in there and they'd be like oh you're the you're the one coming up now with the comedy panel shows for us because you've clearly got your head around the idea of jokes and and wanting to make stuff funny and you know the names of comedians who might be relevant for this and so you're allowed to work in a comedy career outside of being in a comedy field like a strict comedy field so i would say yeah and i'd also say write to your heroes that'd be my big thing write to find a producer you really like and just write to him or her and say i want to make it in this thing would you would you be up for having a coffee and more often than not they'll say yes because more often than not that's how they got their start as well and so they know that it's a process that just gets handed on and, and they get excited by that because they'll probably get excited by the idea that they could do what someone once did for them. That's the, that's the, I mean, anytime someone asks me and, and it's, and you know, no one really asks me, but it's happened a couple of times. I immediately feel this kind of almost like need to do it because the experience of, of having it, you know, through say with John Lloyd, that was the most, for me, the most precious thing I've ever gone through is the experience of having a mentor Someone just to say, like, you know, this is what you can do, and I can maybe put you in contact with this one person. So write, write to the people that you kind of you want to emulate the career of. I think that's a that would be my biggest tip, because more often than not, they'll say yes to sitting down with you. And do you have any tips or advice for students? If you're a student coming out of school, going into university, I would say if you want to do comedy for a living, make sure that the degree that you're going into has an actual relevance in the real world in terms of um, something that's just going to make you... I mean, let's let's be honest. If you're going to do an English degree, I think you should just quit now if you know you want to do comedy and just get into comedy. Get a job somewhere and just get right into it. If you're going to do a zoology degree or something in medicine or science, definitely do that because... If it doesn't work out um, that you become a scientist, you're going to have great jokes and experience to take into your stand-up. And it's a useful thing. You become a useful human. I'm a very unuseful human. I don't go to university. I don't have any bits of extra knowledge. I learned how to plunge a sink the other day for the first time. I probably wouldn't have learned that at uni anyway, but that's kind of just the core level of how shit I am as a human. Um, but if I did go to university, I would have gone for English and I think I would have wasted three years because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I moved to England and I got my job straight away with QI purely just by meeting John Lloyd and, and writing to him. It was the luckiest break in the world. And I guess I guess maybe I'm a bit... Um, uh, I have a different answer to this maybe had I not have met John so quickly and I'd spent a year and a half trying to get that first job. That might be a different answer. So I was very lucky to have got what I got so quickly. But I do think if you know you want to do comedy and you're at uni or you're going into it or you're in it right now, just quit. Like, it's just not useful. You don't need it. Are you going to read another Tolstoy book and analyze it? And or are you going to, you know, learn about media studies? What's the point? If you're going to be a film director, stay in. Definitely. If you're going to be a, a sound engineer, definitely stay in. You can do all that kind of stuff. But if you're going to be a stand up or you want to write comedy, just get out. Don't go to Footlights or the Oxford Review. I mean, that's assuming you're at Oxbridge, which 99% of people aren't. And don't think that by going to Oxbridge, it's going to get you into television and radio because that's a, such an old mentality. And everyone thinks, oh, it's all Oxbridge. And yeah, a large part of it is, but a super large part of it isn't as well. And people just need to get over that. They're like, oh, I'm going to do Footlights. Fuck that. When's the last time Footlights have had a good show up at Edinburgh? They've had fine shows. But like they haven't like become comedy super gods just because of an association of a place that produced Peter Cook and the Pythons. Like there's a lot of dross, but the dross is actually can be top end stuff as well. But you don't need it. You just don't need it. It's just badges. Uni is a badge. Just get out. Just get into comedy. <laughs>